You are listening to CFCR 90.5 FM. It's time for the nerdy news. It's Punch Radio. And this week, you have Brennan and Jody and Dave. There is no Craig and Hank this week. So uh, we have lots to talk about. Some movies, some TV, uh, some YouTube, some 80s music, and a whole schwack of comics. So lots to talk about today. Brennan, lead us off. You saw a movie called Bliss. Please tell us about Bliss. Okay, so this doesn't happen often, but um, it happens when you watch a movie and you've seen it once and you go back and watch it again because you're not sure if you actually liked it or not, or if it was as bad as you thought. So the first time this happened to me was when I saw Old in the theater, the M. Night Shalahan movie. And I went and saw it. And after it was done, I wasn't sure if it was as bad as I thought it was. There were parts that I thought I should like about this, but I kind of don't. So I took my friend to the theater to watch it a second time because I trust her judgment. And I said, am I right to think that this movie isn't very good? And we decided it wasn't. And Bliss is along that same kind of idea. So um, it stars uh, Sama Hayek and uh, Owen Wilson. IMDb says, a mind-bending love story following Greg, that's the Owen Wilson character, who after recently being divorced and then fired, meets the mysterious Isabel, played by Sama Hayek, a woman living on the streets and convinced that the polluted, broken world around them is a computer simulation. So when I read that description uh, on Prave or Crime, oh, or uh, uh, Prime, Crave and Prime, I'm like, oh, that actually sounds kind of interesting. So the movie starts and it's very slow. It's kind of setting this, this tone, this kind of pace. It almost had a kind of a Edgar Wright meets Wes Anderson kind of vibe to it at the beginning. It's like really kind of taking its time a lot of sound sculpting. So we have Owen Wilson in his office and work is chaotic and his office is totally quiet. And then the door opens and like sound is rushing in. So that part at the beginning, I'm like, okay, I, I see what we're doing here. Like I kind of like how it's getting set up. And then after having this very long opening, we just sort of have this complete play on, is this reality? Is this not reality? Is, you know, what, what is actually true? Through the course of the story, and this is set up from the beginning, so like this isn't really spoiling anything. We do discover that Owen Wilson um, has some type of drug problem. We know that. Uh, we know that he's getting them from, from Isabella, from the Sama Hayek character. What we never quite know is, at least as far as I watched, what their connection is. Why is she so interested in him? Is it just because he is an unreliable narrator? and forgets that he's in the real world and she keeps feeding him drugs to keep him lost in this whole trance of not being in reality. There's the, the question of what's real and what isn't is throughout the entire movie, right? Which, and I hate to say it, any movie that if you're not sure if the world's a simulation and you're taking pills, you can't help but compare it to the Matrix. You know, and that was clever because when you watch the Matrix, they're explaining it with you. In this one, it's like they're purposely trying to always keep you on your toes. So I was having kind of fun trying to guess what is real, what is not real. At one point, I even thought maybe Salma Hayek's character wasn't even real, like a fight club kind of thing. Whereas the person I was watching it with then said, you know, I've never seen Fight Club. And I was like, what? <laughs> Have you not seen Fight Club? That just seems like something that everyone's done at this point. So we're watching for a bit and I pause it just to see how much more time there is left in the movie. And we were just at the 55 minute mark and there's still about an hour and 10 minutes worth of bliss to watch. And I, I didn't find it that blissful. So I decided to watch the rest of it another night. So here's my only caveat to this review 
is that I didn't actually finish the entire movie. So maybe when you get to the end, there'll be some great unveiling that will just blow your mind. But I did get home and I didn't want to wreck it for myself, but I was kind of curious. So I looked up a, a couple quick reviews. Uh, IMDb gave it a 5.4 or 10. Rotten Tomatoes gave it a score of 28%. IndieWire gave it one out of five. And the few reviews that I read, uh, none of them were, were nice. One of them, and I'm paraphrasing here, said that uh, the director, Mike Cahill, is that he has this big idea for a motion picture, but it's too big for him to handle. And he didn't know how to make it, which apparently is like his other couple movies he's done where he's had like this big high concept and he just can't seem to, to get it out of the park. Now, will I finish it? Yes, soon, probably not. I wouldn't mind actually seeing how it ends, but I'm also not in a big hurry to see it. But I am curious if any listeners out there want to like jump in the ring and say, no, like this is a great movie and you should check it out. Um, I'm more than happy to hear your arguments. But after the first hour, not even 55 minutes, I was uh, not convinced. So I'm just warning you now. It seems like the kind of movie when I saw the trailer, I'm like, oh, this is something our listeners would, would super like. It kind of seems a little bit art housey, a little bit kind of fun, pretentious sci-fi kind of thing. There's enough sci-fi elements um, as far as it seems like rooted in reality. And then there's like a cool instrument of some kind. Things are just a little bit different enough here and there to kind of show you it's different. But again, how much of it is real and how much of it isn't? Since Owen Wilson is such a um, non-reliable uh, narrator, we never quite know exactly what we're watching. So enter at your own risk uh, and let me know if you think bliss is at all blissful for you. I don't really mind watching a movie if I don't know at certain points whether what I'm seeing is real or unreal. But if I ever question, like, does the filmmaker know what's real and what's real? That's a really bad sign. And it sounds like Cahill, maybe? Yes. Had some issues with that, with this movie, from what you're saying? Well, possibly. And there were parts that I felt like we were being baited a certain way. It was like certain things were done in the movie, I thought, in a way just to make the audience be off guard. Mm. And what was an artistic choice or whether it was just, ooh, I'm going to make this esoteric and confusing for the audience. That part I wasn't quite sure of. It does get to one point that I didn't expect to happen, which was like, okay. But then after being there for a couple of minutes, I was just like, okay, I'm already, thanks for the surprise. And now I'm bored of it already. So um <laughs> I don't know, just, I think tonally, it had a lot of issues. I think that was the big thing. You never quite knew where it was going to land. I think it sounds like ignorance is bliss and that you should just like not watch this and watch Fight Club instead. Much better choice. But like I said, I'll probably dive in and, and uh, I don't know, give me a couple of weeks and they might get the bliss part two review. Okay, fair I, enough. I've, I've heard some theories floated recently about Ferris Bueller and whether like, you know, he's actually real or whether he's just a figment of Cameron's imagination. <laughs> And apparently, if you watch Ferris Bueller and you watch just Matthew Broderick's costume changes throughout the movie, there's no possible way that he could get in and out of that many outfits. And that that's possibly a sign that he's really just like Cameron's ideal friend. Hmm. I guess that's possible. But there's all the subplot with like the principal and stuff that like hinges on him being real. So just feeds the Ferris mythos. Okay. And well, I'm that was the thing, like the, with this one, the, the Selma Hayek character, at one point, I was wondering if she was real or not, right? Because they were, they were together, but whenever she would leave, someone new would always show up. But then there's whole other scenes that she was on her own. So I'm like, well, if you're imagining that whole other scene, you're just taking your psychosis to the next 
next level. You know what I mean? So Sounds like um, the 70s TV Wonder Woman, where we can never figure out why nobody ever notices that Diana Prince and Wonder Woman are always convening on the same locations. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Okay. Well, I think I will give Bliss a pass, but I do have a recommend for everyone, and that is The Great. Now, this is a, it just finished its second season. It came out in November, 10 episodes, and it is a, fictionalized account of Catherine the Great and her rise to power in Russia. And it is like mostly not true, but it is really, really, really fun. Um, it's created by Tony McNamara and he based it on a, his play originally. It stars Elle Fanning in the, the main role. Uh, Nicholas Holt is her husband and emperor of Russia. And everybody who is in this is on point. Like the characters are awesome. It sort of has a feel of Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, where it's like a lot of strange juxtapositions of like music and pop culture with that lavish, beautiful world. They do not scrimp on the produ production values of this at all. It's beautiful to watch. The costumes, the sets are amazing. And just this week, ba -ba -da -ba, huzzah, it's been reviewed for a third season. So I have no idea when that might actually come out, but I am excited about it because this is a really, really great show. Yeah, season two ended at a point where if the series had ended there, it actually would have been fine. So I'm kind of hoping the great will kind of be like Mad Men where, you know, season two, three, four, five will all end at a place where, okay, if the series ended here, we could be satisfied rewatching the whole thing, mm -hmm. but it would always be nice to get one more. Yeah. I, I, I think this is a hard series to recommend because as soon as you see any promotional stuff for the great, you're going to start thinking, okay, period piece. And maybe that's for you and maybe that's not, but this is not, a historical drama uh, and I don't feel quite right calling a comedy either so it's kind of got everything I've decided to call the great a farce okay yeah that fits and what watching it has made me feel mostly is that like we need more farce <laughs> we do need more farce. Our, our world the history of our world is ripe for farce someday the farce that somebody makes about the early 2020s is hopefully going to be hilarious i hope so but the great is a really funny show where they touch a couple of accurate history points and then just gleefully ignore history and embrace anachronism if it makes the show more entertaining yes and makes a lot of good a lot of good choices gets a lot of good performances uh, this is a show that works incredibly blue without actually showing any nudity until maybe season two, episode nine. Um, no, there's been other nudity in it, but, but, but lot, like it is, it is very sexual without actually really showing anything. Showing nothing, but just talking about it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is great. Elle Fanning is fabulous. I have so much more respect for her as an actress after watching this because her depth is amazing. Just watching her face transform as different feelings come in and realizations of her grandeur and her grand schemes, it, it's so great. And, and Nicholas Holt, like this is the kid from About a Boy. 
That's what everybody kind of knows him for. But he is a grown man now and his comic timing is impeccable. He is believable, even though his character is ridiculous. And it is a actual joy to watch. I, I kind of thought Nicholas Holt won season one. Sure. But watching season two, I'm realizing that I only thought that because the script gives him all the good lines, all the funny zingers, all the like witty, stupid things to say. Elle Fanning wins season two just by working the part that she has. She doesn't have those zingy lines and comebacks. She has to do a lot of work to make her role work without necessarily being aided by the script. Yes, that's true. Yeah. The, the way her co-star is given all these kind of tasty scenes and tasty lines and ways to be the villain of the show, but you still never really find a way to root against him. Nope. He's just like, yeah, to for, for an actor to represent the aristocracy in 2022 and still not completely turn the audience against him, that's a pretty amazing thing. Yeah, he's a lovable monster. He absolutely is. Um, the other periphery roles are also great. So many awesome performances. Um, notably in season two, Gillian Anderson has a sweet little cameo and it's tasty. I love it. Yeah, she 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 dips in for, I think, you know, like a uh, few, few episodes. She's in, she's out. And it's just, it's great to see her again. And, you know, she sort of steps into a cast uh, where there really are no admirable personalities and is so wicked. She makes everybody else look good. Yeah, it's amazing. So check it out. It's on Hulu. It is worth subscribing for. It is wonderful. And I, I really, really dug it a lot. So put that on your list. Okay, let's move on to Friday's Find little delving, digging into the past. This week blew my mind because we discovered on YouTube a channel called JM Archives. That's J-E-Y-E-M Archives. This person has put together thousands of videos, primarily from the 80s. So if you're a fan of 80s music, you need to like subscribe to this channel because there's constant stuff being put up. Um, there are over 200 Duran Duran videos on, on a playlist and it's interviews and concert footage. I think this person has to be from England because like a lot of this stuff I've never seen before. And the cherry on the cake is, there are all these episodes of Pop Quiz, which I had never seen. Pop Quiz is amazing. Pop Quiz surpasses even the greatness of JM Archives. Pop Quiz ran on BBC One from 1981 to 1984, and it was a trivia game show. But the contestants were rock stars. So you'd have three on three hosted by DJ Mike Reed. And we're not talking like, you know, D-list celebrities. We're talking no, 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 like... No, no, no. Queen, we're talking like Robert Plant, we're talking Duran Duran, we're talking like all these like huge mega stars. Midge Yerf, Fergal Sharkey. 
I mean, like Bob Geldof, like just, and it, it's a hard show. The questions they ask are hard. They get grilled on lyrics. They have to identify video clips. They have to just general trivia about chart position, which of course is different in England than it was in North America. So it makes it that much more challenging for us to watch now, but it is awesome because you get to see these great rock stars like in their prime. Like I, I remember course that John Taylor was handsome but I was actually awestruck and I forgot how handsome he actually was yeah there's really if they ever made a Duran Duran movie unless Christian Bale was available there's just no way that you could make that happen it would be very very hard because yeah he's he's incredible Christian Bale might might be too old to play John Taylor I think he's point. too old uh, but it's a great show Chalamet Mm, he's too maybe too young he's wrapped up in that whole dune franchise so I, I, yeah i don't see how that's possible so pop quiz um actually in that short time frame had six seasons so there's approximately 50 episodes but they're all brilliant and then they tried to revamp it again in 1994 uh with chris tarrant as the host but it's it just doesn't have it i'll watch those ones anyway when i'm done with the older ones just because I, I really, really like this game show, a music trivia game show where all the contestants are like in Spandau Ballet. Yeah. That, that's fun to watch. Yeah. Like where, when do you get to see uh, Marillion or, or, or Marilyn? Or Blamange. <laughs> or the, yeah, yeah. Anyways, it's awesome. Uh, again, JM Archives, J-E-Y-E-M. Check it out on YouTube. There's just, hours and hours of entertainment i was i'm giddy a little, I, a little friday fine for our all our 40 and 50 somethings out there yeah and it's great okay now let's talk comics so a whole bunch of stuff came out this week we're going to talk about she hulk a little bit we're going to talk about bolero uh bolero came out it is an image book it's going to be a five issue series and it is written by wyatt kennedy and the art by Luana Vecchio. This is Wyatt Kennedy's debut. So that's kind of exciting. It's almost a debut for Luana as well. She's done a few Kickstarter comics and she's done a couple of like little compilations for Image and she was featured, uh, she had a little piece in uh, the J July 2021 issue of Heavy Metal. She's got a really nice style. I, I really enjoyed the art in this. Basically, Bolero is about a gal. Things are just kind of not going so great for her. She has a rough go in issue one. Yeah, she does. She's like, she's an aspiring tattoo artist. Her relationships aren't working out. She's kind of screwed some stuff up. She's a bit of a drunk sometimes. And she gets an opportunity to forge a key that will allow her access to alternate universes but she can only go to each one once. She can never go home and she can only go to 53. After the 53rd, you like implode or something. Um, and uh, her beast of burden who gives her the key, sort of her guide that she can go revisit anytime without spending one of the 53 visits is a really cool looking cat. <laughs> so I'm in. I, and it's only another four issues. So I love that image is still putting a lot of um, time and, and care into making these little mini series because I like a series that I can just like get my arms around. I don't have to subscribe forever. 
What did you think of it, Brennan? A great description. What I kind of like, the beginning part seems like it could be like a love and raucous kind of story. You know what I mean? Like very slice of life. You know, I have some friends. This is going good. This isn't going good. And then suddenly it becomes Douglas Adams and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or something. You know, it just has like this complete shift. There's a whole little page pamphlet about the multiverse in you. And you get to actually learn the instructions, like what are the rules for the universe? Um, which again, I like that. I like that when they're actually, you know, teaching you about it at uh, the same time as the narrator. So yeah, no, it was a fun read, you know, a nice little cliffhanger at the end. And so I'm curious to see how the next few issues will be. But um, yeah, the art's beautiful. It looked really great. Yeah, definitely check it out if you're looking for something different than just your usual superhero fare. What did you think, Dave? I'm glad that you guys enjoyed it. <laughs> no, no, that's that sounds a little too cold. I, I, I will read issue two because it's really dangerous to judge one of these series on issue one. But I will say I'm not super invested in what any of these characters are doing yet. And also one thing where I think it is fair to judge an issue one sometimes is on the artwork. And I was a little underwhelmed by the artwork. There are things that happen in this story that could lend themselves to really amazing artwork. And issue one for me, maybe just never quite got there. Well, maybe because we're in the real world, you know, that the art might change once she goes into the alternate universes. That's a good optimistic view moving forward for Bolero. Okay, good. Well, then let's move on to She-Hulk. This was one that I bought, but have not yet read. I think it's going to blow up because, of course, we are expecting the She-Hulk show to be coming out fairly, fairly soon. And uh, is that still it, it, Tatiana Maslany? Isn't she supposed to be doing it? There was like, she was doing it. And then she said, no, I'm not doing it. And then I am doing it. So I, I don't know where we landed on that. Uh, Sam, I kind of lost, I lost my way through the maze of what was happening with the show, unfortunately, but I'm sure they'll let us know sooner rather than later, or at least before the show comes out too. Maybe it's just because you were talking about Selma Hayek before, but I, I think she would make a great She-Hulk. Mm, she's too old. No, 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 no. She-Hulk she is, is eight. You need a full-grown woman to play She-Hulk. Yeah, but she's like, she's like a corporate lawyer. She's like, anyway, maybe. I'll think on that. Okay, what did you think of the book itself? Uh, so this is She-Hulk number one by Marvel, obviously, written by Rainbow Royal, Royale, um, and Roger Antonio was the artist. You know what, for a first issue, it was really fun. Right away, we have uh, Jennifer Walters walking down the street. Uh, she's starting over again. She's at a new law firm. She has no clients yet. I'm not exactly sure what's happened before this because I haven't really followed She-Hulk since the John Byrne series, which I loved, by the way. So why she's kind of starting over again, I don't know. And right away, um, she's met up with Titania, who wants to fight She-Hulk. And she makes a comment right away. I heard you got cut down to size. And she said, only relatively speaking. So this She-Hulk has looks more kind of like, not like she's bigger than the John Burns She-Hulk, but she's not like the big massive giant she once was. So there's been a couple nods to her looking different. And again, I'm not sure if that's happened somewhere else or if it was just they wanted to change her look. And so they're commenting on it. So people are like, oh yeah, she is different now. Good read. Sometimes there's a little bit of a lack of background in the first few pages, but they're also fighting in an alley. So, I mean, I guess there's only so many different ways you can make brick walls. So, okay, fair enough. And in an action scene too, it kind of gives it a bit more of a, a mega kind of look to it. She's having a change of heart just generally. So we, we meet She-Hulk going through some kind of transition. She gets some help from a friend 
And there's a really nice nod to the John Byrne series and a little bit of a spoiler, but not really. She actually goes back to her old apartment, which was kind of nice. So you get to see kind of like some old locale and, you know, she's hoping to start over. But of course, it can't be a comic without some kind of su surprise twist at the end. And, you know, I'll say it once, I'll say it twice. Whenever you bring back some B-level character that no one cares about as the big cliffhanger or the big surprise in the story, I'm all in. And this one, I was like, oh man, I was so excited. So it ends off well. It's a good read altogether. Like it's not, it's not groundbreaking or mind-blowing, but you know, a good first issue. Nice to see She-Hulk back in the courtroom. Well, eventually in the courtroom. And uh, yeah, if you like She-Hulk, check it out. Okay. Did you read anything else this week that you uh, want to tell the folks about? Uh, I did read through Pace. P oh, you know what? I'm just tired of talking. It's been too much time <laughs> today. Um, Peacemaker, Disturbing the Peace. I didn't know this was coming out, but it did. Garth Ennis did the writing. Anytime Garth Ennis does something, I get excited. Uh, Gary Brown did the art. I've always liked the Peacemaker as a character. Then in the Suicide Squad movie, they kind of made him more of a jokey kind of like tongue-in-cheek kind of character. I was curious to see what Garth Ennis would do if he would kind of do the ultra-violent funny story or more serious. Essentially, this is Peacemaker just saying, hey, here's what I've done in the military in this is all the people that I've eliminated through the course. So it's kind of a neat background kind of story, but doesn't really forward. I mean, it forwards Kurt Ennis's version of the Peacemaker, but is this going to be canon with the Suicide Squad or are they going to have like the black label Peacemaker? Kind of like the Punisher, right? Like so there was the Dark Punisher and then there was the Spider-Man Punisher. So they could be creating that. It was fine. Lots of blood, lots of guts. Garth Ennis writing about war in violent ways. So... You know, you can't go too wrong, but again, if you if you don't read it, yeah, you'll probably be okay. All right. Well, the show is certainly getting a ton of buzz. People are loving it, so I'll have to give that a chance for sure. I do want to drop some news. Last week, we were talking about Flashpoint and Flash and all that good stuff, and there is a new Flashpoint coming out in April. Flashpoint Beyond. Um, the This is exciting because it's going to be written by Jeff Johns. And he's good. And it is art by Zermankio. I'm butchering that. I know that. But uh, basically the plot of this one is that Batman, Thomas Wayne, is he's got a bead on the clockwork killer. So even though his world has fallen apart, he may have some resolution in uh, resetting everything so that his son's reality will actually like all get back to normal. So, wow, put that on your calendar for April, new flashpoint. And that wraps up our episode of Punch Radio. So thank you for tuning in. You will find us here again next Friday at 6 p.m. And in the meantime, keep your dukes up. I am forever searching higher
Is the time enough for peace? Is the 